Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here is Pastor Nick. It says that in verse five, some of them were busy. Some of them were busy with work and life, right? They got their heads down. They're just plowing forward, dealing with what's right in front of them. And so they just ignore the invitation to come to the wedding feast. The next group, though, they're not just indifferent. They're openly antagonistic. They attack the messengers. And some, for some reason, they're angry. Now, I don't get it. Like, why would you be angry? Somebody's like, hey, come to my free party. I'm going to feed you dinner. And, uh, like, there will be music, and it will be great. And you're like, I hate that idea, and I'm going to, you know, attack these messengers. I don't get it, but that's what they did. What Jesus is saying in this parable is that God is inviting people to come to the wedding feast, which is heaven. He's inviting them to come and be united with him forever in joy and celebration. That's the message of the gospel, that God has done everything. Notice all the preparations are made. There's nothing that needs to be done by those who come, right? Your part is just to respond to the invitation and enjoy the experience of what he has done for you. And yet there are people who not only just ignore it, there are some people who are even antagonistic against it. How could that be? I don't know, but that's the truth. Look at verse eight. Then the king says to his servants, Well, if these people aren't willing to come, then just go out into the streets and invite anybody who you find, bring them into the hall, and just whoever comes, that's who will be there. So the servants go out, and they go out into the roads, the streets, and they start gathering the people they find. And I love this phrase. It's so compelling, isn't it? It says, they brought in the people, both the bad and the good. That's a key phrase, the bad and the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the invitation goes out to everyone, both the bad and the good. Kings and royalty, by the way, they don't generally mix with the general population. They usually keep their company with a certain class of people, don't they? With a particular social and financial class. The king is doing something completely out of the ordinary. He sends his servants out to gather anyone who's willing to come. Imagine the kind of people you would find if you just went out in the street and just started gathering everybody you saw on the street. Homeless, the beggars, right? Common people. They're going into shops, dragging people out of their businesses. They're going into the marketplace and just bringing whoever's there. They're going into the fields and bringing people who are in the middle of work and just bringing them into this wedding feast. And they're brought into the wedding hall. Now, none of these people, of course, had time to go home and fix themselves up and do their makeup and put on nice clothes. They just got pulled out of a field, and and some of these people were homeless, right? Like, it's all the clothes they have. Some of the people who were brought in were bad people, right? Like, they were rough characters. They had questionable pasts. Definitely not the kind of people you would expect a king to associate with. But this is a picture of the gospel. That God has done everything and he invites you to come. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, you're invited to come and be united to God in celebration and joy that lasts forever. The problem is, these people aren't really dressed for a wedding, right? Like, have you ever showed up somewhere and you're just not dressed for the occasion? Well, that's these people. They, they came right off the street and, and they're not dressed for the occasion, which brings us to our second point, which is the gift. 
Now, it was customary in those times, and you can't really understand this story unless you understand this custom, because it seems weird that this one guy, his clothes just aren't right, and then uh, he gets kicked out. Why? Well, here's why. It was customary in those times that if you got invited to a fancy party, that the host of the party would provide you with special clothes to wear at the party. Now, this was especially the case when it came to royalty. You would come in wearing your regular clothes, whatever you wear, you know, sweatpants and and yoga pants and uh, jeans and t-shirts, which might be fine for out in the street or out at work, but they're unfit for the presence of a king. And so, of course, no one had, had as much money as the king in those days. So the only way for you to have clothes that were presentable before the king was for the king himself to provide those clothes because he's the only one who has the means to have those kinds of clothes. And so we, did you know that we actually see this custom in two places in the Bible? And then it's referred to in several places in the Bible. So in the book of Genesis chapter 45, you read about Joseph and his, his brothers. You remember the story, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt through miraculous turn of events. He becomes a high ranking official. Then the brothers come, they're poor, they're hungry. And what happens? It says that Joseph meets them. They don't recognize him because it's been so many years. They haven't seen him since he was a kid. Well, he brings them into the king's house. And then what happens? It says that the king provided them with clothes to wear. In other words, the king took them where they were, changed out their clothes to make them presentable before himself. We read about it in the book of Esther, same thing. There's this guy Mordecai, and the king wants to bring him into his court. But in order for Mordecai to come into the king's court, he has to look presentable. So what does the king do? The king provides him with a change of clothes. In fact, uh, you know, we see the same custom here in verses 11 to 12. That's exactly why it says, when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who didn't have a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? The wedding garment was a special garment that everyone would have been gifted, given as a gift by the king when they walked in. And so naturally, the king thinks it's weird. I gave everybody uh, this gift. Why, why didn't this, did he not get one? Right? Why isn't he wearing it? This is, again, a well-documented custom in many ancient cultures, and it's actually something that's referred to in the prophets of Ezekiel and Isaiah refer to this custom, and they say that this is a picture of what God does for his people. This is a picture of God's grace. God meets you wherever you're at, right? And he takes you, and he begins to adorn you and bless you and clean you up. In other words, the message of the gospel It's not that God accepts you if you are beautiful, if you are good. It's that God meets you where you're at and he works in your life in order to make you beautiful, in order to make you good. See, the message, again, he he works in your life to make you beautiful. It isn't that you have to become good enough for God to accept you. It's that God meets you where you're at and he gives you everything you need in order to make you acceptable before him. That's the message of grace that we call that in theological terms, imputed righteousness. You lack the righteousness you need to stand before God, so he imputes it to you. He accounts it to you. Now, you might ask the question, so if God does all the work and he provides everything we need and he makes us acceptable before him, then how is it that anybody goes to hell? I mean, isn't he doing it all? How could anybody go to hell? Well, that brings us to the last part of our story, which is the refusal. The king comes into the party And he notices this guy not wearing the wedding garment that he provided everyone with as a gift. And so he goes up to this guy and he asks him, friend, I love that. He addresses him as a friend. He says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Was there some sort of mistake? Did you not get offered one? And it says the man was speechless. 
And the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him out into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this guy, who's not wearing the right clothes, goes to hell. That escalated very quickly, didn't it? Right? Like, the reason for the king's reaction is that this person refused his gift. There wasn't a mix-up. It was a refusal on that man's part to receive and apply the gift that was given. See, this person apparently thought that his clothes were good enough. Maybe he was, you know, maybe they were pretty nice clothes. And he thought, you know, I don't need the king's garments. My garments are good as they are. So he refused the king's gift. He thought that he was plenty presentable just the way he was. He didn't need the clothes the king had provided. The only problem was he wasn't presentable the way he was. And he couldn't stay at the party wearing those clothes he was in. Instead, he refused to put on the wedding garment which was provided for him. And therefore, he had to leave. And what awaited him outside the party was terrible. And you can't help but look at this guy and be like, what, what's the deal? Right? What, what are you thinking? Right? You're given a choice between a wedding feast fit for a king and outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're going to choose darkness over the party just because you're so stubborn that you're not willing to just change your clothes and put on the clothes that were given to you? Does that make any sense at all? Why would you do that? And yet Jesus wants us to see, as ridiculous as that sounds, that is exactly what people are doing. That is exactly what people do when it comes to God and his offer of grace. You see, the metaphor of clothing is a big one in the Bible. The Bible says that God is clothed with glory and majesty. He's clothed with holiness. In Isaiah 64, we're told that compared to God's holiness, our good deeds are like filthy rags in comparison. Now, remember that not our bad deeds are like filthy rags. Our best deeds are like filthy rags in comparison with the glory of God. Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities? Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. But the promise of the gospel is that God will come, and if we will come to him, he will clothe us with his righteousness as a gift in order to make us acceptable before him. Isaiah 61 verse 10, it says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So the person who refuses to accept the gift of the king's clothing 
who insists that their own clothes are good enough. This is a metaphor for a person who says, you know what, I think I'm good enough. I don't think I need to repent. I don't think I need a savior. I think that when I stand before God, he's gonna be like, hey, come on in because you're a decent person. You tried hard and you did well. Now remember, both the good people and bad people were welcomed into the wedding feast. The only person who's sent away is not an immoral person, but a person who refuses the clothes the king has provided, thinking that their own clothes are good enough. See, what we see in this parable really are four different responses to the gospel. Four different responses to the gospel. The first three are different forms of rejecting the gospel. First by ignoring, then by being antagonistic, and thirdly by refusing this gift that God gives you, this gift of God's grace. All three of these responses result in the same thing. These people are left outside of the party, in the dark, experiencing great regret and anguish. But the fourth response is the response of those who receive and accept the invitation. They accept the gift of the king's clothes and they gladly put them on. Those are the ones who get to take part in the wedding feast and the celebration. They get to experience the joy. And here's the point I want you to see. I want you to ask you, you know, ask you this question. In response to the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? Let me respond with a question of my own. What if hell, in light of this parable, what if hell is not so much God's decision to live without you, but the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? Let me say that again. What if hell isn't so much God's decision to live without you as the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? Because here's, here's the thing. One day, you're gonna stand before God. So am I. And the question is, what will you be wearing on that day? It's the most important question. What will you be wearing when you meet God? The Bible says that some people will stand before God naked. In other words, they will be totally unprepared for that moment. Others will stand before God clothed in the rags of their own righteousness, like this guy in our story. And then there will be those who stand before God clothed in the white robes of Jesus' righteousness. Again, following this theme of being clothed by God, let me read you what it says at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, what will happen at the end of all things. Here's what it says. John, he's speaking of this vision he has of heaven, and he says this. When I heard what, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty, pearls, or mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, check this out, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guys, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has made all the provisions. He's even offered you the clothes that you need. And the question is, how will you respond? What will you wear? See, in light of this parable, I want to ask the question again. What if hell is not so much God's decision to live without you as the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? In Romans chapter one, Paul the apostle tells us something about God's judgment, which is very similar to what Jesus says here in the narrative form in Matthew 22. In, chapter, in Romans chapter one, verses eight through 32, Paul describes that God's judgment is essentially this. God's judgment is essentially God giving people what they have insisted upon. It's giving people what they have insisted upon. Three times in that section, Paul repeats this phrase. He does it three times. The phrase is this, so God gave them up. 
so God gave them up. In other words, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to give you what you yourself have insisted upon. See, if what you want and what you've insisted on is something which will ultimately destroy you, then getting what you insist on is the worst thing that could happen to you. And we're told in in Romans chapter one that God's judgment is based on knowledge. God's judgment is based on knowledge. So when people ask the question, what about people who have never had the chance to hear about Jesus? Romans chapter one speaks to that question. It tells us God's judgment is based on knowledge. God judges us based on what we know and what we have done with what we know. And still Romans one tells us, it says, look, in spite of that, all people everywhere in the world are without excuse Because all people have a sense of right and wrong. There are things that they can discern. Some things are right, some things are wrong, and all of us know that we have done things which we ourselves know are wrong. And that's why the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it tells us this, the wages of sin is death. You could put it this way. Hell is not punishment for particularly bad people. Rather, for all of us, it's our default destination. Our default destination is death and eternal separation from God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, that hell is described this way, as eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. See, here's the thing. The hellishness of hell is the absence of God. The hellishness of hell is that you will be eternally separated from God. I think sometimes we get so caught up in our material concepts, right? Because we only think about things that we know. We think about these material concepts, what heaven and hell will be like, and we miss the point of both. We think about, you know, literal flames, or we we ask the question, well, if I go to heaven, well, will my cat be there? Or like, what size will my mansion be? And we're totally missing the point. Guys, the heavenliness of heaven is that God will be there, and the hellishness of hell is the absence of God. In the same way, again, Jesus, you could put it this way. If Jesus is the bread of life, then loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, then loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then loss of Jesus means wandering and lost, right? If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, Loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for our sins, then loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. And what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 1 is that the ultimate form of God's judgment is when God gives you what you yourself have insisted upon. And think about what that means. It means this. If a person spends their whole life pushing God away and saying to God, I do not want you to rule over me. I don't need you in my life. I don't want you in my life. I want to be separate. I want to do my own thing. I want to be autonomous. If like the person in our story, uh, if the person continually refuses the invitation to the wedding and they refuse to put on the clothes that God has offered them and provided for them, then the ultimate judgment is for God to say, okay. Uh, On the other hand, if you cast yourself upon God's mercy, if you confess, hey, my righteousness is not enough, I've fallen short, I need God to save me, that's the attitude of humility by which you receive God's grace. See, the Gospels describe how Jesus agonized. He agonized in anticipation of being crucified, beaten, flogged, nailed to a cross where he would hang and he would die. And he knew what awaited him. And it says that knowing that as he anticipated it, it caused him to sweat blood. What that means is that he was so stressed out that the capillaries in his forehead burst and blood came out of his pores. It's interesting, isn't it? Because 
you consider the fact that Jesus himself said that he was going to be dead and then rise again after three days. Jesus himself knew that being crucified is a terrible way to die. But on the other hand, there are people who have suffered longer and more physical pain, haven't they? So why was Jesus so nervous? What was it about this that caused him such anxiety that he sweat blood? Well, if you read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels, it's very clear that the agony of the cross wasn't primarily the physical pain. The agony of the cross was, was what was happening in the spiritual realm when that took place. As Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced hell multiplied out. See, because as Jesus hung upon the cross, all the sins of the world, you know, God's righteous anger against things like the Holocaust, child abuse, sexual assault, all of that was placed upon him. And as Jesus bore our sins, the Father forsook him. It literally became dark in representing the fact that darkness had come upon him. It says that Jesus cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, in his suffering and his death, he experienced that tangible darkness of being forsaken and separated from the Father. He experienced hell on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to experience it yourself. See, understanding the reality of hell and the severity of hell, it helps us understand why the gospel is actually such good news. As you get that, right, that it's only good news if it's good, right? In order to appreciate salvation, you have to understand what you are being saved from. Depending on what you're saved from, it's going to affect how you feel about it. It's going to affect how you appreciate it and how you respond and how you cling to your Savior. The reason why Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible was because he loves you because he cares about you. Think about this. Would Jesus have been a better person? Would he have been a better teacher if he didn't talk so much about hell? I don't think so. Think about this. Would a doctor be a better doctor if he didn't tell you about your condition, especially if you had a curable disease, a disease for which there was a solution? No, that would be the worst doctor in the world. Jesus didn't just talk. He didn't, when he talked about hell, he didn't talk about it gleefully. He didn't talk about it glibly. No, he talked about it with a tear in his eye and a tremble in his voice. There was a sense of urgency that drove Jesus because he knew what was at stake. And again, he didn't just talk about it. He faced it head on in order to save you from it. He suffered hell so that you could have heaven. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. And you might wonder, how does that even work? He's just one person. How does his death somehow resolve my problem and pay for my sins? Well, to understand that, you have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a passive victim of God's wrath. No, Jesus, it says, was God himself. Come to us in human flesh. Jesus declared, for example, that he is the one who will judge humanity at the end of time. In other words, Jesus is the judge who came down to be judged in our place. He is the one who took our place, the place of the condemned, in order that we might be set free. And the message of the gospel is that your situation was so dire that God himself had to come and die for you. But here's the good news. God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. See, what we learn from this parable in Matthew 22 is this. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. He sent messengers to you. He loves you. He has prepared everything. He's done everything in order to save you. He's provided everything you need, and he's inviting you to come to his wedding feast. And the question is, how will you respond to that invitation? What will you wear? 
Don't make the mistake of these people in this parable. May we be those who receive the gift of God's grace, but then maybe go one step further. See what happens after you receive that gift. Here's what happens. You get to become a messenger that God sends out into the world to invite others to come to his wedding feast. And as we do that, may we sense that same sense of urgency about God's mission to save people from hell, which Jesus himself felt. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this topic, it's a sobering topic. It's not one that we talk about gleefully or glibly, Lord. It's a topic that we talk about with a tear in our eyes and a tremble in our voice. But Lord, may we also sense that sense of urgency that you felt, Jesus, that, that caused you to say, uh, I will take on human flesh. I'll come down to this world. I'll suffer and I'll die in order to save these people. Lord, may we be those who gladly receive your salvation and thank you for it and cling to you with all that we have. And Lord, may we be those who then go out in mission and say, we want other people to experience and know what we ourselves have come to know of your grace. So Lord, we ask this morning that as we consider these things, Lord, fill us with a sense of appreciation for the gospel, a sense of thankfulness, but also a sense of mission to the lost. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.